42 X-Files Retrospective Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week we discuss Fire, Season 1, Episode 12. The original air date of Fire was December 17, 1993, and the IMDb score from users is 7.3 out of 10. Personally, that actually surprised me when I checked that this time. I've always found this to be one of the stronger episodes. It also has a pretty interesting history when you look at what was happening behind the scenes. We'll look at the behind the scenes stuff later. First, we'll do just a quick synopsis of the episode. It starts with the usual teaser. We're, we're seeing what's going on. We get an idea of what the threat is. Again, Mulder and Scully are not involved before the opening credits. In this case, we see a pretty wealthy man saying goodbye to what appears to be a trophy wife, followed by saying goodbye to a number of his servants as he's on the way out. Now, one of them stands out pretty quickly. As the man gets to his limo, he bursts out in flames, and everyone's panicking, everyone's worried, everyone shows concern, except the gardener, who's just sitting there smiling. It's a pretty short teaser, that's all we get, just the one scene, almost one shot, and then we cut to the opening credits. After the opening credits, we get some of the nice Mulder and Scully banter again. It's shown up in previous episodes, not in the past couple. This episode in particular gives us a few good interactions between the two of them. In this case, they're coming back from a court deposition, heading to the car, complaining about the monotony and the problems of actually appearing in court and making statements, and Mulder quips that one of the nice things about chasing aliens and genetic mutants is that you rarely get to press charges. So they get to the car, and it's found unlocked, and Mulder's pretty sure he locked it. They get inside, and there's a cassette tape sitting on the dash. One of the few moments we've seen in the past few episodes that really marks this series as one from the 1990s, and not something more recent. It's a cassette tape. In any event, they put it into the stereo, start playing it before they leave, and Mulder reacts. He seems to recognize the voice. And the voice is talking about how six months ago, a man in Britain, a fairly well-to-do man, received a tape just like that one in his car, and when he played it, he didn't realize he was activating a mechanism. And he was sitting on quite a quantity of plastic explosives. And if only he hadn't pulled the door handle to set it off. He ended up being blown sky high through his vehicle 40 feet in the air, where he could only be identified by dental records. So as this is playing and we're getting this relayed to the audience, Mulder and Scully look at each other in a bit of concern. and They're starting to be worried. Is this what's going on here? Someone plastic a bomb in their car. This is interrupted when Mulder's door gets swung open from the outside by Phoebe Green, who is someone that he used to work with back in Oxford. So we cut from here to FBI headquarters, where we find out that Phoebe's brought a case over from her work in Scotland Yard, and she's looking for Mulder's help with it. There's been a number of arson fires, all with no sign of an accelerant, but with some incredibly intense heat. So in the series of murders are not just your typical serial killer. It seems to be an arsonist who's threatening them in advance and often sending love letters to the victim's wives. So he's even more messed up than your typical arsonist. And while we're going through this, we get the very strong impression that Phoebe is not just an old colleague, but an old lover of Mulder's. Even to the point where Scully questions him on his relationship with Phoebe after Phoebe leaves, and Mulder has a Agree to run it by the local arson experts, and we get, again, some of the great banter between them. Mulder says he was just extending a professional courtesy, and Scully responds, oh, is that what you were extending? So again, the two of them are working very well together, and in an episode written by Chris Carter himself, that's not terribly surprising. As the story develops from here, the audience knows that the gardener of the previous victim, who is now tracking down a new victim here in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, has actually bumped off the local caretaker and taken his place. 
The audience knows what the threat is. The characters don't. They're still under the impression that this is the regular caretaker he's vetted who's been here for a while. They have no reason to suspect anything's going on with him. But he's definitely getting very familiar with the wife of the man that's come to Massachusetts looking for protection and to escape the threats that he's faced in Britain. While this is going on, they're talking to the arsonist, and while the audience is learning what's going on here, Mulder and Scully and Phoebe are meeting with the FBI's local arson expert who's looking at the flames and talking about how intense the heat is. Now the issue when he gets this hot is that trying to douse the flames with fire is just feeding the fire. Because once you pass a certain temperature, you'll actually dissociate the water molecules into oxygen and hydrogen and just add fuel. As the story progresses, we find out that Mulder's suspicion is right, and the person we're looking for is definitely a pyrokinetic. He can set things on fire, just with his mind. We also know that he is using an accelerant to help speed things along. One of the accelerants that they get on the list from the FBI's arson experts is exactly what he's using to repaint the walls with in this Cape Cod residence. And we don't know how long he's been here and how long he's been painting, so this place could be ready to go start to finish and top to bottom in seconds. As the episode progresses, we learn a few things. One of them is Mulder has a fear of fire. When he was a child, he had to help a friend, his friend's house burned down, and he had to stay with the friends and stay there overnight to help ward off looters. And it, the experience has just haunted him ever since. He is afraid of fire. And that Phoebe knows this, and this is one of her mind games. So apparently she likes to toy with people and is not a terribly pleasant person. But on the other hand, when she's working with Mulder, she is open to his ideas and open to his fairly wild theories which is a level of comfort that he says he's not used to experiencing. So as things progress, she does manage to sort of rekindle some of the flames that they've had in their relationship. There is an incident in the area, a report of a man who set himself on fire. Now the audience knows that this is our arsonist, Cecil Lively, who's taken the role of Bob the Caretaker, who was doing his pyrokinetic stunts. But there is a witness to this, a woman in the bar who was flirting with him at first until she was scared and left, who agreed to do a composite drawing with one of the composite artists. Things keep going, and we see something of the way the arsonist works, and this performance is just nailed. He's creepy right from the get-go, but the audience sees his creepy moments. He's able to put on a normal face in front of the other characters, because the audience gets a chance to see him alone when the characters don't. So we see him warming up to the kids and making inroads and making friends in those relationships. But we also see that he's deliberately put their regular driver out of commission so he can take that role. And as they go to a hotel, he plays the hero. He sets a fire and rescues the kids. Now, part of the reason he's able to set the fire is because Phoebe doesn't have her mind on work, and she's able to distract Mulder, too. So when Scully comes with some of the information that she's dug up, she finds the two of them kissing alone during the slow dance that they can hear from the room next to the ballroom. But that is interrupted when Scully sees the fire alarm on the 14th floor where the kids are. Mulder does try to save the kids. Part of the reason that Lively is the one that can get him out and not just setting it up is because Mulder's fear of fire kicked in, and he panicked and was turned around. So we see that that is haunting him the next day. Scully's saying it could have happened to anyone, and he's there saying, well, no, it happened to me. So they eventually get out of the hotel. With a little bit of digging afterwards... Scully has been able to identify Cecil Lively as the threat and tracked some of the arsonists back to him. So Mulder, Scully, and Phoebe start coordinating with that. They realize that he's on the mainland, he's come through on a passport, so they go back to this family to immediately start packing them up and sending them home. But when they bring the composite sketch that the woman has brought with them, they are able to identify it as the man who's taken the role of Bob the Caretaker. So they're trying to get them out immediately, but by the time they identify that, Bob the Caretaker is upstairs alone with the kids. When Mulder goes after them, he sets a fire 
So again, we get the scene we're all expecting, where Mulder overcomes his fear of fire with the kids in danger, pulls them out. Lively does come out and sets himself on fire to stop them, and ends up in the intense burn unit ward. So the episode does wrap up, although he shows incredible recuperative abilities, at least from wounds caused by fire. So the last time we see him, he is burned and roasted inside the burn tank, but saying he's dying for a cigarette. There's no problems opening his eyes, no problems speaking. He's recovering very well despite a steady body temperature of 109, presumably Fahrenheit. So as the episode goes, it works well enough. It's always been enjoyable. Doing the research for the podcast, I found a few things out about what was going on behind the scenes. So as I mentioned, this is another episode written by Chris Carter. It's the second and final episode directed by Larry Shaw, who also directed Fallen Angel. And this isn't quite as strong as Fallen Angel, but it's still well done in a lot of ways. A lot of the interesting things I've learned doing the research is what was going on behind the scenes at this point. Now, at the time, Amanda Pays was one of those guest stars that was prominent, but unlike Donald Logue and a lot of the ones we've seen that were on here before, before they were stars, she's one that audiences would be expected to recognize. Prior to this, she had been the female lead on both the Flash TV series and the Max Hedrum TV series, on top of other roles. But she's not even the most notable guest star. To my mind, that's Mark Shepard, who plays Cecil Lively, our pyrokinetic. Prior to the X-Files, his only IMDb credits include two episodes of Silk Stockings, about a year apart as two different characters, and an episode of In the Name of the Father. Since then, he has also starred in episodes of Mantis. He was in 20 episodes of Soldier of Fortune. He was in an episode of Sliders. He was in an episode of Martial Law, The Practice, an episode of Voyager, a two-parter in JAG. He was in an episode of The Invisible Man, The Chronicle, Special Unit 2, two episodes of VIP, an episode of Charmed. Since X-Files, the first thing that really struck me for him was his role as Badger in three episodes of Firefly. After that, he was also in A Murder, She Wrote Made for TV Movie, an episode of Jake 2.0, an episode of Las Vegas, an episode of Monk, an episode of CSI New York, six episodes of 24 as Ivan Erwich in 2006. He was in Without a Trace. Dr. Charles Walker in three episodes of Medium. A few episodes of The Bionic Woman is Anthony Anthros. In Plain Sight, two episodes of The Middleman, NCIS, an episode of Burn Notice. He was in six episodes of the relaunched Battlestar Galactica as Roma Lampkin. He was in three episodes of Dollhouse, a couple episodes of the main CSI series as two different characters. He was in two episodes of Chuck, Warehouse 13. He was in the relaunched Doctor Who, Canton, Delaware, in the Series 6 openers, Impossible Astronaut and Day of the Moon. He was in Leverage and he's also been seen as Crowley in 19 episodes of Supernatural. So he's been getting around. In interviews, he said he hasn't been trying to weave his way into all the major geek culture shows of the past decade, even though he's found his way into most of them. He enjoys the genre, but those are just the roles he keeps finding himself in. He's not making a particular effort to land that type of role. Still, it's easy to see why his career took off, because he absolutely nailed this character. On top of that, there was a lot more going on behind the scenes at this point in time. Now, Gillian Anderson, when she was originally cast, she was cast because Chris Carter fought for her, and he fought hard. The roles that she had taken up to that point didn't require the level of memorization of lines in the short time frames that the X-Files did, so she wasn't used to having long speeches and so little time to memorize them. It's a challenge that she definitely rose to, but it was a challenge at first, and apparently the network wasn't happy with how many retakes and reshoots that they had to do. Some scenes 19 or 20 takes. It was costing them time, it was costing them money, and they were seriously looking to replace her. And that's where Amanda Pay's character came in. That was actually request from the network as a potential replacement for Scully. So her character would take over the role that Scully would take, and Scully would be written out. So this is the threat that was handing over Gillian Anderson's head 
at the time. This is something that was being seriously considered. Now, at the time, Gillian Anderson was romantically involved with an art director on the series by the name of Claude Cotts. And at this point, something happened that would typically be considered the worst possible thing that she could have done at this point. She got pregnant, and the first people that she told her producer, Bob Goodwin, who was credited as R.W. Goodwin, directed a lot of the season premieres and season finales of the series. Not a lot of the mid-season episodes, because his role as producer didn't allow him the time to do that. She also told Glenn Morgan of the Morgan and Wong co-writers pretty early on. And he was the one that told her, don't tell anyone else. Just keep it to yourself. She did share it with others, including Chris Carter, who was furious. David Duchovny apparently was a bit taken aback. Not outwardly mad, but the way Gillian Anderson describes telling him, he was thinking, what does this mean for the show? Because in season one, the ratings weren't that strong, and they were fighting for every dollar they could get. And they stretched those dollars a long way. They made the show that they were making in this season with a three-man special effects crew. And if you look at the number of effects that they have in a typical episode, that's a lot of work for three people. Ultimately, the pregnancy turned out to probably be one of the better things for the series. We don't see how that plays out until the middle of season two. But when we get there, it's going to be the start of a very interesting ride. Meanwhile, next we're going to see another strong Scully episode, this one titled Beyond the Sea, and the first episode aired from 1994. Intro and outro music is by Lastwell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content, copyright 2014, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments and feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes.